chapter 18. We're going to do a survey, if you will, on chapters 18 and 19, and then we'll look at chapter 20 a little bit more in depth. But just to have an idea of what is going on in Israel right now, or at least in their minds as we enter in, especially to chapter 18. Now, so far, a group of rebels and their families, these people, they saw them swallowed up by the earth. Remember, they were confronting Moses, and God God brought instant judgment upon them. And so they saw this. They saw them standing in front of their tents, the earth open up, and these people and their whole families were swallowed up by the earth. Then the 250 guys who did not learn their lessons from the example of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, as they offered strange fire to the Lord, they had censers full of fire, but they were censers of fires of rebellion and they were consumed by fire from the Lord. So again, people are watching this. They're seeing the earth move up or open up and, and this families be consumed. They're seeing these other people that are offering this, this incense and now they're consumed by fire. And then one day later, all the people complained against God because of these things and 14,700 people died in a plague. We have Aaron, it was probably Aaron's final hour. He finally went out and he stood between the plague and the rest of the people and God relented from the judgment that he was bringing. Now, we should be noticing how God feels about obedience to his word and submission to his leaders. Very Well, unity is of utmost importance to God. It's of utmost importance to the work that God wants to do in a people and through a people. Now, Israel, now they come to the understanding of the magnitude of their sinful nature. And look at, in chapter 17, look at verse 12, it says, So the children of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Surely we die, we perish, we all perish. Whoever comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Surely we all utterly die. Well, the tabernacle's in their midst, and so they've got to be wondering, if we make one long step here, we're dead people. I mean, there, there, there's dead people all around. I mean, just think, just think to see 14,700 bodies plus another 200. Well, the 250 bodies, they were kind of instantly cremated, so they were gone, and then the people were swallowed up by the earth. But nonetheless, there's still the 14,700 bodies. And all of that is an example, and these people are becoming scared to death. See, the tabernacle, which should have been a source of encouragement, now becomes a source of fear. Maybe it's not such a good thing they could say, to have God dwell amongst us. Who can handle the responsibility? Who can deal with the repercussions? And again, this fear has overwhelmed them. And that which was to be just such a blessing. Again, God delivering them, God going with them, God dwelling amongst them now has turned into something else. But as the events of our lives are for our learning and maturing, God shows them the situation from his perspective. And so once again, in chapter 18, God reminds them of the place of the priest. As long as they fit into God's system, it's a good thing that he dwells in their midst. And so going into chapter 18, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with the priesthood. And so God confirmed that it was Aaron. If you recall last week in the previous chapter, they got the leaders of each of the tribes, their staffs together, and it was Aaron's staff that budded and even produced almonds. Now, 
God does not demand sinless perfection from his people because he knows that mankind cannot deliver upon that. So it's necessary for somebody to stand in the gap between sinful man and a holy God. And so God chose Aaron for that. So I mean, keep in mind in the progression of the books, Genesis, for the most part, were introduced to God and introduced to his chosen people. In Exodus, God's chosen people, well, they're in bondage to the world and God delivers them from the world and gives them the law. And then there's the book of Leviticus. Well, if you can't keep the law and you want God to dwell with you, well, there's the sacrifice. And so as we went through Leviticus, it was all about the sacrifice that was necessary for the breaking of the law. Numbers is the journey through the wilderness and into the promised land. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, and they just go riding up, right up to the borders, the change of leadership between Moses and Joshua, and then Joshua is the entering into the promised land. Judges is the back and forth serving God and not, and then so on and so forth with the rest of the history of Israel. But nonetheless, it was necessary for the people to have the priest because it was necessary for the people to have the sacrifice. And so God gives a reminder to Aaron and his sons. Now keep in mind again, they're seeing the seriousness of this. As God gives them his word, he expects them to keep his word. As God has given you his word, he expects you to keep his word. And so we've got to see the necessity of obedience to God's word. Now we know that God is a gracious God and we thank God for the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that washed all of our sins away, without a doubt. But I still want to be well-pleasing to him. Well, based upon what they've seen, you see the seriousness of the priesthood. The priesthood, the priesthood, so that everything that God has shown them and told them and commanded of them can be followed out. When there's not perfection in the keeping of the law, there had better be perfection in the keeping of the sacrifice. So, again, chapter 18, I'll read again from verse 1, we'll go through to verse 7. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary, and you and your sons, you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood. Also bring with your brethren of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve with you, and your sons are with you before the tabernacle of witness. They shall attend to your needs and all the needs of the tabernacle, but they shall not come near the articles of the sanctuary and the altar, lest they die. So they have their place, and they needed to keep their place. They and you also. They shall be joined with you and attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting for all the work of the tabernacle, but an outsider shall not come near you. So an outsider could just be one of the other tribes of Israel or even somebody outside. And you shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, that they may be no more, that there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. Behold, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. They are a gift to you, given by the Lord, to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Therefore, you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So as offenses will occur, but it's how the offenses that are handled that is going to make all the difference. So although every person is responsible for their own sin, it was the priests who were in the sin-covering industry, if you will. That's why the priest, priesthood 
could never rest because they had to keep sacrificing because the people kept sinning. And as the people kept sinning, they'd have to keep sacrificing. Because again, God, God led them out of the world and God has told them that he's going to dwell with them and he was dwelling with them or he is dwelling with them, but there has to be the dealing with sin. There can be no undealt with sin in the camp. So it's here that we see more clearly the concept of priest, the priest representing God to the people and the people to God. The priest was to continually keep the altar fire stoked and the sacrifice burning. He was to ever work to make intercession for the people. So it was about 2 million men that left Egypt. And so think of a corresponding number, give or take for women. There was kids. And so there's all of these people. Let's just put the number at 6 million. You've got to work to cover the sins of 6 million people. I know people in this room that could keep a priest busy year-round. And I'm just thinking of me. But you're laughing because you're thinking of you. But, I mean, seriously, the sins of that many people, just think of all of the the sheep and all of the, the bulls and all of the sacrifice that had to continually be going on. Now, we know that all this leads to the great high priest who was the sacrifice once and for all. That's why we're told in Hebrews, what did Jesus do when he made the perfect sacrifice? Anybody know? He sat down. He sat down. That's why there was no chairs in the furniture of the tabernacle, because the priest was always working. But Jesus was able to sit down in a chair, and that was the throne of God. He was able to sit down. Why? Because he had taken care of the perfect sacrifice, once and for all. Matter of fact, the only other time that we really see Jesus standing was to receive a martyr for the faith, Stephen. And you saw, I see, I see the, the Lord, I see the Christ, and he's standing. And so Stephen was entering in. It's as if Christ got up to receive Stephen, one of his martyrs, unto himself. But nonetheless, as far as the sacrifice was going, or as, as the sacrifice had been accomplished, it was done. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 seeing that we have a great high priest, not just a high priest, but a great high priest, the greatest of high priests, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in the time of need. So what are the people's problems here? They can't approach God. They can't even go near the tabernacle. They can't even live in the camp with any kind of boldness because, again, they know the sinners they are. That's why they were saying, once again, backing up in chapter 17, verse 12, so the children of Israel spoke to Moses saying, surely we die, we perish, we all perish. Whoever even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die, so we all utterly die. They're coming to the realization that they're sinners. They deserved to get what, well, what those 250 got. They deserved to get what all of the rebels got. And they understand that. Well, God, again, is reminded in the priest, you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary. You and your sons with you bear the iniquity associated with the priesthood. You are to deal with the sins of the people. Again, a continual effort. Because just keep in mind, 
the importance here, at least the importance in the mind of God. What was the centerpiece? The centerpiece was the tabernacle. But what was the purpose of the tabernacle? The dwelling place of God, but also the place where sin was dealt with. And so you see the utmost importance of dealing with our sins. So because sin and death, of sin and death, God gave the priest as a gift to the Israelites and the sons of Aaron's, he gave to them, he gave the gift of the Levites to help in the never-ending work of the sacrifice. As long as the system was operating and the people participating, it worked well. It worked very well. And it's the same thing today. As long as God's plan for salvation, as long as we're participating, it's operating. And what I mean by that is, is if we're quick to repent, God is quick to forgive. Now, the day that I was saved, that I'm going to heaven, there's just no doubt about that. But I want to be well-pleasing in his sight. I I, I don't want to be, you know, we see how God feels for those who who rebel against I I don't want to be in rebellion to God. I want God dwelling in the camp, if you will, in in my life. And so I need to be quick to, to repent. I need to be quick to come before him for that cleansing. And so, again, as the priest was doing what the priest was supposed to do, as the Levites were doing what the Levites were supposed to do, as the people continued to bring the sacrifice, it was all working well. We kind of see a picture of this in the New Testament as far as doing what God has called us to do and seeing the results of that. In Acts chapter 6, it says, now in those days when the numbers of the disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So there's a problem in the ministry. Just look at it as that. And so the apostles understand what their calling is and they realize, well, that as my calling is the word of God, I can't leave from that calling. And so they have a decision to be made. It says in verse uh, 3, Therefore, based upon that, brethren, we seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they chose the men, and they were able to continue on in the word of God, and, and the men who they chose, they were able to serve the people. Again, just kind of the same mindset, if you will, as the priests were doing what they were supposed to be doing, as the Levites were doing what they were supposed to be doing, then the process of dealing with sin was being completed. Well, back in Acts chapter 6, the result was in verse 7, then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So even priests at that day were coming into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moving over to chapter 19. The only place that it is mentioned specifically by name, if you will, this red heifer. The red heifer. The red heifer that you hear so much about. I, you know, if you follow prophecy and all of that, you've heard you know it's just been discovered in israel there's a red heifer and well it's not that which we should be focused upon we need to be focused upon the word of god we need to be focused upon the sharing of the word of god now there was a purpose for the red heifer back then what if it what if there was proven to be a red heifer today well we're not to be looking at those things we're to be looking for the coming of the lord jesus christ but nonetheless we see the 
the purpose of the red heifer back in the day in chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish, so a perfect animal, in which there is no defect, on which a yoke has never come. He's never been out plowing a field or pulling a cart. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in, its, in his sight, its hide, its flesh, its blood, its offal shall be burned. Now when it says burn, he's speaking of a slaughter here. And he says it's killed. He's not speaking of a sacrifice. What he's speaking of is a slaughter here. Verse 6. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes. He shall bathe in the water. And afterward, he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening. And the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin, and the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statue forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them. Look at verse 11. He who touches the dead body of anybody shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day. And so what we're looking at here is the association of death and sin. If I'm looking at that, I'm seeing what God thinks about well, through death and, and the correlation with sin, I'm thinking back to the 14,700, thinking back to the 250 and the families that were swallowed up by the earth. And so just as surely as we saw the place of the priest, we need to be aware of the defilement of death. The defilement of death and all that it encompasses. Again, death has had a very prominent place in the camp of the Israelites in the last few weeks or months or however long it's been, but as death has not been conquered, it still reigns over mankind. And so what we need to keep in mind here, why this special procedure is necessary when it comes to the infection that dealing with death brings in the sight of God, that somebody who touched a, a dead body could still be cleansed from that defilement, well, it all has to do, again, with that correlation between death and sin. So what we see in the scriptures is, Death will always be in close relationship with sin. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, we know that to be Adam, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. And so what does that tell you? If there's no sin, there's no death. Why is there death? Because of sin. God created Adam and Eve. His desire... He knew it wouldn't happen, but his desire was is that they would live forever. If they didn't sin, they would have lived forever. But they did sin, and because they did sin, death entered in. Secondly, death exists because of the rebellion of mankind. Romans chapter 5, verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. And so it was rebellion by Adam that allowed sin to enter in. 
that in turn allowed death to enter in. And then thirdly, the throne of sin is death. We see in Romans chapter 5, verse 21, sin reigned in death. And as I said before, I've had a week of looking death in the face. And it's a hard thing. Again, my wife told me on Sunday afternoon that we had to make that, that hospital visitation. I don't mean had to, but, you know, not wanting to. But um, when you hear of that, especially a situation such as it is, it, it just, it's, it's a hard thing. It's just a hard thing to see the ugliness of death. A hard thing to go walking into the hospital. And I, I walked into this waiting room and, and they, I was asked if I could pray with the family before we went into the hospital room. And I, I, I go in there and, you know, there's quite a few people in this waiting room and I told them who I was and we we're going to pray. And they all stood. There was about 40, 50 people there. And they, they were all there because they were very concerned for this young man and, and his family. And so I pray for them. But just looking into their face, they're, they're looking for answers. You know, why is this happening? And, and, and there's just such a confusion because a man who's 34 years old ought not to be on his deathbed. And then from there, ushered into the hospital room and see this man who is hooked up to the tubes. And as I'm there, his father's holding his hand and his father's just beside himself. The wife is on the other side of the bed and she's kind of in shock. You know, she's just kind of with a daze and, and it's, just, it's just a horrible thing. And I pray over him, and I pray for the wife and the father and the people that are there. But it's just, it's just it, it ought not to have been. It just ought not to have been. And I can truly see that it was not God's will that death would enter into the equation. And then later on in the night, we st- stayed there for quite a while with them. And then later on in the night, my wife and I, we left the hospital and went home. One day, chances are, One of us or both of us are going to go to the hospital and we're not going to go home. It's more than likely somewhere along that scenario is going to happen to all of us. One day I'm going to get out of bed for the very last time. I don't know when that day is going to be. I don't know if it's going to be sooner or later. One day I'm going to say goodbye to my wife. I'm going to shut the door and lock the door for the very last time. Get in my car for the very last time because because of sin, because of the sinful nature of man, we're all appointed towards that day towards that day that we're going to die. And and really what makes all the difference is what did you do with Christ? Because as I go into that hospital, as I go into that room, as I look at all those people, what did you do with Christ? As I look at this man, and I don't really know this man. I'm there because Maria, and and he's related to her. What did he do with Christ? I was told he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and I pray that he did. Because we're all destined for that particular day, that day that they're going to turn off the machine. And, and I was there for the day of the death of my father, and I was there for the day of the death of some of the church members. And I've seen people die in the Lord, and I've seen people die apart from the Lord. And I can tell you this, God makes all the difference. He makes all the difference. He just makes this, well, I'll, I'll just never forget a, a lady, she was... Jane. Jane was the first one to represent Calvary Chapel, Ontario in heaven. She was a born-again believer, and I don't remember what cancer she got, but she got cancer, and she was a younger lady. I think she was in her 40s, and when she got the cancer, it it went very fast, and uh, 
I remember I, I, I hadn't known her parents or, uh, or her sister or brother, but it seems like these people, once I did meet them, I've known them all my life, they were born-again believers, and they were just, they just had their eyes upon the Lord throughout the whole experience. And I remember one morning I got a phone call, and they said, we've made the decision to disconnect Jane from the machine, and we want you to come out. And I'm just thinking, I don't know if I want to come out. I didn't tell them that, but, you know, you just kind of, there, there's that responsibility. And, and again, what do I say? And, and, and you know, I know what I say. I say the word of God, but still, because you go in there and you want to say something that just makes everybody say, okay, well, it's all better now. And you just can't make it all better sometimes. But I went in there and they just asked that I would say a prayer over her. And I did. And, and again, you got you know, there's this 40-year-old woman and there's her mother and father, elderly mother and father right there. And there's her brother and sister and they, found, they turned to the nurse and said, okay, we'd like you to do it now. And she did. She disconnected the machine, and, and she left. And they still, you could still hear the beep, 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 and then you heard it, what they call flat line in the background. And they just looked at each other and said, she's in the presence of Jesus. There was no despair. There was tears, but there was no despair. But there was perfect faith in the midst of that as they stared death in the face. But they were able to overcome because Jesus overcame. And again, that's what makes all the difference. And we have to realize, we have to remember, who cares how many red heifers they find or when Jesus comes back. As for today, I know I'm right with God and I know i got to continue on doing God's work. And it's all about Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11-15, through 15, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sprinkling the unclean, the uh, sacrifices for the purification of the flesh, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's talking about the blood of Christ, as you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, not only has he cleansed you in his sight, doctrine of justification sees you just as if you have never sinned, but he goes a little bit deeper. Because you are sinners? You are, right? Okay. Because you are sinners? You can have a clear conscience before God also. You don't have to be carrying that burden. You don't have to be like the people were back in Numbers chapter 17 thinking, how can we possibly live in the presence of a holy God because just as surely as those other people died, we're going to die as well. Jesus paid the price. What? Once and for all. And again, I've seen the place where it makes all the difference. Entering into chapter 20, we're going to be looking at three different people here, Miriam, Moses, and Aaron. Now, most commentators, and I believe as well, between chapter 19 and chapter 20, some 38 years have passed. Israel has gone, been led back out into the wilderness. They have done their wandering in the wilderness, and now they're back in the area of Kadesh, And they've come back into the area after being in the wilderness of Zen. And they're preparing. There's still things to go on. But they're preparing to enter into the promised land. 
but there's still a lot that needs to happen. In this chapter, we see Aaron's death in verse 22. In chapter 33, verse 38, we are told that Aaron died in the 40th year after the children of Israel had come out of Egypt. If this is so, then Miriam got so close to the promised land, but was one of those who perished as well. So look at verse 1. It says, Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now, we're not told of the year, but again, in verse 22, we're told of Aaron's death, and we're told that Aaron did die in the 40th year. And so... You can take that or leave that, but just in the context of the Scriptures, because as we're going to be looking at Moses' sin, we're going to be seeing that they come to this particular rock to draw water for the second time. And so it just seems to make perfect sense to me. Miriam, Miriam is between 126 and 127 years old. Miriam's only had one blemish in her life, but one blemish is all that is necessary to keep you out of the promised land, and that was in chapter 20 when she rebelled against her brother Moses and she should count herself blessed because the earth did not swallow up or open up and swallow her. Fire did not come down from heaven, although she was for a period of time stricken with leprosy, although Moses interceded for her. Now, next we have an old problem that surfaces once again, only this time with a newer generation. Verses 2 through 6, it says, Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. They're always blaming Moses and Aaron for everything. You want to be part of leadership? You've got to be prepared to stand in the gap. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. When our brethren died before the Lord. Could have been talking about the rebels that we saw, but really what I think they're talking about is is all that generation that perished in the wilderness. They're realizing that all of those people, because they did not have faith to enter in, they died, and now they're basically casting themselves with them. If only we died as well. Verse 4, why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we and our animals should die here? Well, the fact of the matter is Moses didn't. Remember, they're being led by a pillar of fire and a cloud, and it's God who is doing the leading. Verse 5, and why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Well, you could tell them, yeah, you're, you're in the wilderness. This isn't the promised land. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their face, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Moses and Aaron, they were always being complained against. Again, we've noticed and we'll see again that they were imperfect people. But whenever the opportunity was needed, they would always intercede for the people. You see, to the degree in which they sacrificially performed their ministry, these were people that were coming up, even threatening to stone them at times. And any time that God threatened to wipe out the people, Moses always stood in that gap and still represented this thankless people. And so again, in verse 6, Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, to the place where God was, and they fell on their face, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. 
And the idea here is, if you fall on your face before the Lord, you'll be able to stand against any opposition. So think of the opposition that you're facing in your life today. Think of the hardship that you're going through today. Have you been on your face before the Lord? Now, this was something real and tangible, but what you're going through is real and tangible as well. The things that we all go through are, are real and tangible in, in our lives. And so just as Moses, <clears throat> excuse me, in this threatening situation, he was able to stand. But he was only able to stand because he fell on his face before the Lord. Now, the answer to the situation should have been easy, as always. Just do what God says, verse 7 and 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, this is Moses' rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. As Moses did what God told him to do last time, God provided water from the rock, and the same will be true this time. But here, here it's going to be a little bit different. There was a little bit of change to God's instructions. Let's go down verses 9 through 13, and we'll, then we'll look back at the first occurrence. It says, so he got the instruction for God. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, here now. Now, keep in mind, just do what God says don't add to his words, because that's what Moses does here. Worst thing a leader can do. Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you from out of this rock? What do you mean, we, Moses? Moses, you're, you're just a vessel used by the Lord. It's not you who's bringing the water. Moses lost a little perspective there. Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Because, now notice Aaron is culpable in this as well. Because you did not believe me to hallow me or to keep me holy in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring the assembly into the land which I had given them. This was the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed or seen as holy amongst them. Notice how this rock, this rock is referred to as the rock and not a rock. More than likely, what I believe, it's the same rock that Moses struck some 39 years previous. We know in our study of Exodus, you remember the study of Exodus? It, it, it was on April 19th, 2001. I, I looked it up. Was anybody with us in April 19th, 2000? Don, Donna was here that night and Sean was here that night. I'm sure they remember it very well. Uh, there's some rich typology that is here. First, let me go back first to Exodus chapter 17 and just kind of look at the account of what happened back then. Verse 1, it says, all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin. Well, that's exactly what happened. They were back in the wilderness of sin and now they've come back out of it back 39 years later. This is 39 years earlier to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people, thirst, and the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it, this is the same complaint as their future generation had, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? 
So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your rod, which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of Israel. And so Moses struck that rock with his rod, as God had said, and the water flowed. I'm sure Moses was just as amazed as the people. Now, it's 39 years later, Moses Moses has gotten tired of the ministry and the whining and the complaining of the people. God gave him specific instructions. I'll repeat them. Take the rod, just as he did last time. You and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it shall yield its water. So last time, it was strike the rock. Now it's speak to the rock. But what did Moses do? Well, last time he struck the rock and the water flowed. This time... He gives his little speech complaining about the people, and then he strikes the rock twice. I would imagine he struck the rock once and nothing happened. Struck it again, and then finally water flowed, thinking that his rod's not working anymore or something. But God God came before him because that's not what God had told him to do. And so something that God wants to say. So the rock... The rock is a picture of Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In Psalms 95 verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us shout joyful to the rock of our salvation. And so there in the very dry place in the wilderness, our rock is Jesus Christ. The water that flowed for the 2 million plus, probably closer to 6 million, well, that's what when Jesus Christ was struck, what happened? He was struck. He was struck once, speaks of him upon the cross. And what happened when he was struck? What was that living water that flowed? It was the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. On that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so what caused the rock to give the water or Jesus the Holy Spirit? He had to be struck or he had to be smitten. Well, Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But now here's a second time. You don't need to re-crucify Christ. He doesn't need to be smitten again. Now, because he was smitten, now when you come to the rock, now when you're looking for the refreshing water of the Holy Spirit, what do you have to do? I'm sorry, we're having tests tonight, and you guys are being graded. You just have to speak. In, uh, in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, you being evil, you being people of the flesh, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more so will the Father in heaven give the Spirit to he who asks? And it's all I have to do now, because Christ was smitten, is all I have to do is ask. Now, God wasn't mad because Moses messed up his illustration. God... God would not allow him just simply because Moses was misrepresenting God to his people. It's the worst thing that you can do as a leader. Again, what were the priests to be doing? Representing God to the people and the people to God. Moses is the leader of all. He's to be representing God to the people, and he misrepresented God. Why? 
I think it's the worst thing that you could do. It's what my prior religion did. They represented God as being mad. God's not mad. Now, unsaved, I was enmity with God, but God was never mad at me. God doesn't take it, you know, he's, he's going to discipline me at times. He's not thinking, oh, great, look what Pastor Mike is doing now. I can't believe it. No, when there's change that is necessary, he brings the change. Discipline, he brings the discipline. But God's not mad. God, God is a God of, of joy and happiness. He's a God of judgment. Make no mistake about it, but I think that brings more grief than it does madness from him or, or just a... You know, God just does not come up against his people. In verses 14 through 21, we're not going to really get into it, but Israel was passing through Edom. Edom did not allow them to pass through. They were brethren of Israel. They came from the lineage of Esau, but they did not allow them to pass through, and Edom would later on pay a price for that. Then we get to verse 22. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. And so Aaron, again, is held accountable as well. He had a part in it also. Verse 25, Take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, and bring him up to Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments, the high priestly garments, and put him on Eleazar, his son, for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. And so the point is, he's not going to be able to enter in to the promised land. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar, his son, and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain And when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days. And so again, we're seeing the seriousness of all of this. God takes his sacrifice of the utmost seriousness. Why? Because death is real. And because death reigns. And because of that, God had all of those sacrifices that pointed to the day of the Lamb of God who would finally take away the sins of the world. That sacrifice that was given one time for all. Just think if we were thrown back into all of these commandments, these 613 commandments, keeping the feast, making the right, not just a sacrifice, but making the right sacrifice, the proper sacrifice, not allowing your emotions to get the best of you. Miriam caused division, and it cost her dearly. Moses, it cost him dearly. He couldn't enter in to the promised land. And the same with Aaron. And look at Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, offering strange fire, and they were killed. And we need to see the magnitude of the grace of God displayed in Jesus Christ, that I do not have to contend with those things, but I found my rest in God. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your graciousness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Father, that... All of these things were given today for our learning, Lord, that we would know and understand the magnitude of this great love which you have lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. And so, Lord, I just pray, Father, that we would wake up in the morning just rejoicing in who you are, that we would search your word and be obedient to your word, not knowing, Lord, that just as truly as you dwelt in the camp of Israel, you dwell inside of us even today. 
And so, Father, we just lift all to you. I once again lift up the ladies that you would bless them in their retreat. Watch over them as they travel. Make your presence known to them as they are there and minister through them on their arrival back home, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand, please.